Hi, and welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm Peter Mahler. It's been a while since the last podcast, so we're breaking the dry spell with what I hope you'll agree after you listen is an interesting and entertaining conversation with Chris Mercer. Chris is one of the country's best-known and accomplished business appraisers. He's a prolific author, a frequent lecturer, and he's definitely the kind of person you'd want to go out and have a beer with. Chris was my very first guest on the Business Divorce Roundtable when I launched it in 2016. Back then, we did a couple of episodes on the marketability discount. Check them out if you haven't already listened to them. This episode, which we recorded last month, is something of a change of pace. Instead of talking about business valuation issues, we talked about what Chris calls Confessions of a Reluctant Expert Witness, which was the title of a recent speech he gave at a business valuation conference, which he then turned into a blog post, which is how I came to find it. Chris's confessions consist of a series of colorful and valuable insights he's gained over the many years and in the many cases he's testified as an expert witness about the do's and don'ts of testifying, what he likes and dislikes about testifying as an expert witness, what engagements he'll take, which ones he won't take, and a bunch of other observations about his experience as an expert. So without further ado, I give you Chris Mercer. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. And before we get started, let me congratulate you on your 10th anniversary blog post today. Oh, thank you so much. And I know you posted a comment as well, and I really appreciate it. It is amazing that it's been 10 years. I I should have said, Chris, when we started, welcome back to the podcast. You were my first victim or or guest on this podcast, and we spent a good amount of time talking about the discount for lack of marketability, as I recall. Today, we're going to to be putting you in the in the confessional, or actually you volunteered yourself, I think, to go into that confessional. And you recently gave a talk for a business valuation conference. One of the talks you gave was uh, you called a uh, reluctant expert witness confesses, and then you highlighted that talk in a in a subsequent blog post, which I have in front of me. And in that blog post, you say that you have testified either at trial or at a deposition about two hundred times. That's correct. And but but you but you entitled this talk a reluctant expert witness confesses and I thought wow two hundred times that's a whole lot of reluctance why why would you call yourself a reluctant expert witness Peter I got into the business of testifying reluctantly I was uh, at a more, at an investment banking firm and uh, participated in a fairness opinion for going private transaction for a small healthcare company. The transaction occurred and one of the shareholders dissented. I ended up reluctantly in Chancery Court uh, in Memphis, Tennessee and was having to testify about the valuation. Now the good news about that is that I did testify and the court agreed with the original valuation so uh, that was good. But what I remember about that is that I walked into the court after waiting outside on a bench in a noisy court in a noisy hallway. I walked in with my Redwell file back then in my right hand and my briefcase in my left hand. And they told me to stop in the middle of the room. And it's the first time I'd been in the courtroom. And it looked like the ceiling was about 200 feet tall. And the judge was about 1,000 feet away. And it was just very intimidating. So they told me to stop. They said, raise your right hand. Well, I got the red well in my right hand and the briefcase in my left, so I have to put it all down. I raised my right hand, and they said, Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? 
And the thought that went through my mind was, my God, I'm guilty. <laughs> well, at least you didn't drop the red weld, right? And no, I set it down. And you then I picked it, it up and went, and went up and testified. Chris, I, I, you know, I read your, your post on that experience, and I noticed that was, what, 36 years ago. You were just a young pup. I was. So you had a, you had an excuse for that moment of panic, it almost sounds like. But then you went on to test. I mean, once you get on the stand, you forget all that, don't you? Well, you have to because you're there and, you, you know, you're doing your job and you're testifying as to what you did. And, uh, and, and of course, uh, you, you do the best you can to tell the court what you did. And I did. But now after 200 times testifying, whether it's in a deposition or a trial, I imagine it must be so different for you. You've achieved so much in your profession. You're recognized as one of the top in the in in the biz. And I imagine you walk into that courtroom just, you know, bursting with confidence. But then when I look at your list of confessions, what's the number one on that list? Ner- nervousness. Now, how, how do you how do you reconcile having been through the drill? 200 or more times, and, and you telling me that even now, even today when you testify, you're nervous. Peter, you may have heard that the number one fear that many people have in life is literally the fear of speaking in public. That's uh, I'm a member of the National Speakers Association, and they, they tout that uh, fact quite often. I mean, the fact is, it's helpful to be nervous. It focuses thinking and that sort of thing, and it's natural to be nervous. What's important is what you do with that nervous energy. If you let it eat at you, then you won't do well. But if you let it motivate you and make sure that you're prepared, then that nervousness will propel you to do a good job. So There is no, there is no substitute for preparation when you go to court, as you as a lawyer know. That's true. I think it probably is safe to say that that's true for any type of witness, whether they're expert or non-expert. Be prepared, and it's the lawyer's job particularly to make sure that the witness is prepared. Wouldn't you agree? I, I would. Well, I, the, the lawyer better make sure the witness is prepared, but I assume that responsibility myself. I think it's encouraging to the younger testifying business appraisers to hear you know, an old dog like you who's testified <laughs> as many times as you have that you still uh, get nervous, but that you use that nervous energy f- for your advantage and to the advantage of your of your client. Your next confession you call love or hate. I was intrigued by that one as well. And, and you have this great line in there. You say you're not sure whether you love to hate litigation or whether you hate to love it. And it depends on the day and nature of the of the cases you might be working on. When I think about litigation and, and I think about the things that I have been blessed to be able to do, it is wonderful in many respects to think about uh, having the opportunity to work with uh, for and against some of the best and brightest people in the country. And in a sense, uh, I, maybe I love litigation in that regard, but I, uh, I, 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 but I hate to love it because the other side is that I love to hate it because when, when, when all of those resources on the other side are focused down on me, and you have two or three or however many lawyers making however many hundreds of dollars per hour focused on making me look like a fool, then 
I guess I hate to love it. Well, you know, it's funny you say it, it, it depends on the nature of the cases, which is interesting because I think of what you do is he's, he's valuing the business. I mean, whether it's for purposes of a matrimonial divorce, a business divorce, a merger or a fairness opinion, whatever. Evaluation is valuation is valuation. Why would it matter what the nature of the case is in terms of your gut feeling about whether you love or hate a case? Peter, some kinds of cases are just fraught with antagonism. Uh, for example, personal divorce. When a man and a woman are divorcing and you have their lawyered up on both sides, the antagonism that uh, comes across both in deposition and at trial and in the preparation and, and all of that is not, for me, very enjoyable. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, in, in many cases, corporate cases are much more business-like. It's, it's easier sometimes when the amount of emotion is not quite so high to, you know, do your job and, and, and to not feel like you're being personally attacked. Sounds like it's really all of those sort of ex externalities that, that, you know, influences your, your love or hate for the case. And that makes, sure. that makes sense to me, too. Next on your list, you call it karma. You want to explain that one? friend of mine, uh, Brian Brenny, an appraiser that I've known for 30 plus years. He, he's in the San Diego area and is well known down in that area and does a lot of corporate damage work and divorce work and that sort of thing. But as I was uh, sort of a brand new appraiser coming on, I heard him say on more than one occasion, Chris, it doesn't matter how good you are, how good looking you are. It doesn't matter how well prepared you are. All of those things simply don't matter. If the judge doesn't like your client, uh, your day may well be up. And that's just karma. And all this time, Chris, I thought your good looks explained your tremendous success in your field. Now you're telling me otherwise, huh? Well, my good looks are exceeded only by my great charm and personality. <laughs> well, but, but seriously, it's, I find it interesting coming from you, the notion that a judge really isn't paying attention to the substance of the expert testimony or that the judge is somehow being influenced by not what the experts are saying, but what's going on outside of the expert testimony, in particular their feelings about the parties and, and their behavior. I, I suspect you don't mean that the, a judge's visceral reaction to the personality of, of a party it probably has something to do with the history of the case and a perception whether that party has acted fairly or unfairly toward their business partner. Do you think that's right? I think all of that goes into it, and that's that's what Brian was basically saying. He said, you're coming in as the expert. You don't know what's gone on before. You don't know what the attorneys have said to the judge. You don't know what those clients have done in the courtroom before you got there. You can't control any of that, but when, when the day comes, you may just get shot. You know, I, I hear so often that valuation is both art and science, and, and when I hear the word art, to me that means that there are certain aspects of what business appraisers do where they're really called upon simply to exercise their best judgment. And you can't necessarily point to some objective data set and say, you see, there's the answer right there. And, and so there, there's, I guess you could call it wiggle room for a judge to push the needle in one direction or the other without finding him or herself subject to a reversal on appeal because they overlooked some definitive objective data. Does that make sense to you? Sure. And, and what Brian was saying is judges are people too. While we, we, we think of judges as being, 
you know, totally objective, they're objective in the context of what's presented to them. So they may well be being objective in their minds, but from my standpoint as an expert, if things have gone badly for my client, which hopefully they haven't, before I get there, well, I can tell you that I have walked into court where a judge welcomed me as an expert and uh, accepted my testimony, and I have walked into court where I was not viewed very welcomely, not really welcomed by the judge at all, and it was apparent that the judge didn't really care what I said. I mean, that was my perception. You know, and another another way in which this sort of reminds me also of a notion that many lawyers share, and probably business appraisers too, that it, it's not necessarily antipathy toward you know, one side or the other, or a sense that, you know, justice requires that the judge ding this particular party because of bad acts or something, but it's, it's almost like horse trading. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this side what they want on a cap rate, but I'm gonna balance it out over here on this side on, on a discount. Well, let me, let me give it a slightly different twist. Most of the time, when you go into a court, it's a court of equity. The judge is making an equitable decision, and your valuation or people Pieces of your valuation may not exactly fit into his idea or her idea of, of what is equitable, and they're going to get to an equitable conclusion in their mind one way or another. So if you're if you're sort of caught, and it was your cap rate that got, which might have been perfectly reasonable, but that was the element that enabled the judge to get to a conclusion that he thought was equitable, then maybe that happened. That mm. that, that, that could be karma. Yeah. I, I don't want to be cynical about it, but uh, I, I think sometimes judges don't like experts. I don't. I think sometimes judges don't have a great deal of, of uh, patience with or respect for experts, and in in some cases, that lack of respect is, uh, I, I think, uh, warranted. Yeah, that could lead us into a whole another topic on judges perceiving experts to be advocates instead of. Um you know, independent right. experts, but we, we, we won't go, <laughs> we won't go down that rabbit hole just today. Maybe we'll, we'll do that another time. That's not one of my confessions. So your next confession you call mistakes and errors. You say you hate mistakes and errors, go to great lengths to avoid them, but if there's an error pointed out, well, I'll let you finish. How do you, how do you deal with that? I will uh, mention an error in a report of mine uh, years ago. I was the, the court appointed expert in a matter uh, involving a squeeze-out by uh, one brother of his uh, two minority owner brothers. And the company had an expert that valued the business at $8 million. The uh, brothers uh, got uh, an expert who valued the business at $20 million. I came in as the court appointed, and I valued the business at about 15 or $16 million. When I was being cross-examined, I was referred to a schedule in my very voluminous report. There were multiple entities and that sort of thing. And I was asked, what happened with, what, what about a, a particular number on this page? I said, well, I can't tell you right now, but if you'll give me a five-minute break, uh, I'll be happy to look at it. The judge said, fine. I uh, went and I saw, well, my goodness, there's, there's a footing mistake. The footing mistake went nowhere. It had nothing to do with the valuation. It was simply a supporting schedule. Uh, I walked in and I said, I, you're correct. That number is incorrect. Uh, it has no effect on the valuation because that number is limited to this page. Well, that is not what, uh, that's not how he left it. I remember walking off the stand feeling literally gutted. I mean, I, but I had to admit the mistake. The 
court wrote up that they, there had been a mistake in my report as a way of dismissing what I did, and the court valued not at eight, not at sixteen, not at twenty, but at twenty-two million. <laughs> he was wow. so incensed with what the brother had done to his brothers in trying to squeeze them out that he ended up with a value in outside of the bounds of the experts. Well, uh, I've never forgotten that particular experience. Well, well, I wonder what the appellate court did with that. So um, uh, just before we move on, I mean, uh, in this uh, day and age, I would think that errors of the sort you're talking about are usually brought to the fore even in advance of trial. Courts require counsel to uh, put in pretrial memos, which will highlight those kinds of things, I would think. Or you may have a rebuttal report, which is also uh, trying to pick apart your report and, and bring to light any errors. So sure. that by the time you get to trial, it's already out there and you know how to deal with it. Well, that's true. However, you, you must know that there are attorneys who have uh, a, a different strategy. In other words, rather than pointing out the error in a deposition, they would rather wait to trial and uh, have the expert lose you know, credibility mm -hmm. as a result of the error and then deal with that at, at that time. But be that as it may, uh, in many cases, any errors are already fleshed out because of the deposition process, because of the rebuttal process, and that sort of thing. So you, you like the ambush is what you're saying. No, I don't like the ambush. I'm teasing you, Chris. <laughs> well, as long as you're not the one being ambushed. <laughs> well, it, it, I must say I feel differently when it's somebody else, but I, I, but it, it, it bothers me for anyone. But what, what really is bad is when an error, and I've seen this happen on more than one occasion, when an error is pointed out in an expert's report, and he or she tries to ignore it or explain it away or excuse it away or, or just not simply say, yes, it's an error. Come clean is your advice. If it's there, come clean and deal with it. There's no better way. Confession number five. You love having overzealous experts on the other side. How, how does that translate into what happens at trial for, for you? When an expert on the other side is, uh, as I say, overzealous or maybe advocative, perhaps, the language in the opposing expert's report is advocative at various places. When all of the assumptions line up and they all go in one direction and they all go in the direction of that expert's client's opinion, then for me, you know, it's like uh, shooting ducks in a gallery. Because when, when it's advocative like that, uh, I think that courts seem to appreciate a, a very objective, uh, straightforward, common sense and plain analysis that gets to the point. And, and so I think they make uh, easy targets. They make themselves easy targets by their overzealousness sometimes. Hmm. So it sounds like there are two things going on there. One is that you're able to provide the attorney you're working with with ammunition, I suppose, to, for the cross-examination of that overzealous expert on the other side. And then the second thing is that you're contrasting that overzealous expert with your own uh, more sober and systematic testimony. Yes. Uh, Peter, virtually every valuation or damages case, uh, when you line them up side by side, will boil down the differences in the conclusions, will boil down to differences in one or two, or at most three or four or five assumptions along the way. Maybe there were 10 assumptions, 
three assumptions, four assumptions made the difference. And when when you line them up like that, and they all stand out in a glaring sort of fashion, and uh, they can be reconciled to your own opinion or to common sense based upon uh, looking at the history of the business or very common sense kinds of things, then uh, basically you reconcile back to a reasonable conclusion, and the courts seem to appreciate that. Very good. So let's go on to confession number six which you entitle Who to Work For, in which you talk about how you've developed a client selection process. And when I saw those words, my first thought is, Chris is just too successful if he's in a position now to be turning away business. <laughs> well, Peter, I, I learned many years ago that if we wanted to build a business here at Mercer Capital, that we had to be careful who we did business with. Uh, this quote, confession, who to work for. Number one, I, when I get a call regarding potential litigation, I, I want to know that in, in my first impression that we have the capacity. You know, we have the ability, we have the staffing and that sort of thing to do the engagement. Uh, secondly, I, I want to know after talking with counsel that I believe we'll be able to render an independent opinion. Sometimes when you talk to uh, a, a lawyer, you'll the lawyer is very goal-oriented and is looking for a particular opinion. I want to know that I'll be able to render an independent opinion. Thirdly, I want to know that we can work out an engagement letter that says that uh, we will be uh, compensated reasonably and timely for the effort that we put into it. And uh, the fourth uh, element of that is I've gotten older. Uh, I really don't like to work for people that I don't like. And, and uh, you know, like is something it gets conveyed even in phone conversations. But if someone is nice and is reasonable uh, on that initial call, the chances are they're going to be nice and reasonable going forward because we don't we don't want to work for people that don't treat us with respect. And, and when you say work for people, those people you're talking about, I imagine, are the attorneys, not so much the principals, because you would have either little or, or certainly less contact with the principals. Yeah. Generally speaking, it's it's the council that that retains us. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that uh, client selection process has worked for me uh, over thirty five years to the point where basically my my client mix is about fifty percent economic plaintiffs and fifty percent economic defendants. So that I, I've I've never been successfully accused of working for only one side. So you get a call from an attorney that you don't know. He explains or she explains what's going on and what needs to be valued and what they're looking for. And he or she says to you, you know, my client believes that his business, her business is, you know, worth certainly not less than $20 million. How do, how do you respond to that? I mean, you don't, you haven't seen anything, you don't know anything. How do you feel out now whether this is someone that is going to allow you to be the independent expert that you need to be? Well, most of the time, uh, attorneys are too smart to tell you what they believe the client thinks it's worth. Uh, I, I would rather deal with uh, what are the revenues of the business, what are the earnings of the business. Once I know that, for example, if the revenues of the business were $20 million and the earnings were $2 million and, uh, and the attorney said the client believes it's worth $20 million, and it's in a business that I know is not worth more than six or seven times earnings, then we're not going to be we're not going to be able to help them out. Uh, a quick short story. 
Years ago, I got a call from a banker. He had an ESOP, and uh, he wanted uh, he was looking for an appraiser to a new appraiser to value his ESOP. And then he said, uh, I "Can can you give me a one and a half times book uh, valuation?" And I, <laughs> this was back in the uh, late '80s, early '90s, when banks were not trading at multiples of book. And, and I said, "Well, uh, I'm not telling you. We haven't looked at anything. I'm not telling you that uh, I, I wouldn't be able to value the bank at one and a half times book. I will just tell you that I've never done it yet." That, and, and was that the end of that relationship? <laughs> that was the end of that budding relationship. Yeah. <laughs> Confession number seven, positions to take in litigation, which sort of relates to the point we, you just made about, you know, your independence. Although it's, it's different too. I mean, you talk about engagements where you might have to take a position different than a position that you've published somewhere or that you've taken in a litigation, uh, where there's a record available. Uh, you can explain it better than I. So why don't you go ahead and do that? Sure. Well, I recognized uh, early on that experts uh, took positions of convenience. Uh, there were experts that took positions of convenience. Uh, for example, a minority discount. Well, a minority discount's appropriate in certain circumstances. Uh, well, it either is or it isn't, okay? <laughs> and there are no set of circumstances that uh, uh, that warrant where one it does not exist or where one does exist. And, and, and so I began to write and speak uh, in the late 80s uh, about business valuation, and I began to take positions. Uh, on theoretical issues or practical business valuation issues. Uh, I realized that I would simply uh, not accept engagements which called for me to take positions counter to what I believe in and, and, and the positions that I have thought through and, and taken publicly in the past. For example, I, I would probably have a hard time coming to New York and arguing for a 35% marketability discount for a, a fair value determination uh, for uh, an LLC or even for an operating well, company. Well, let, let, let me put a finer point on that. I think you'd get laughed out of court. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, so I would not take that engagement. <laughs> I would not take that engagement, and and, and because uh, I, I know what positions I've taken, I, I know what I've written, and I've been I have been very consistent over the years, and, and when a position has evolved or changed, I've documented that so that I know when that position has changed. I mean that that's interesting. Uh, my sense of working with many appraisers over the years is that they're loath to take uh, positions one way or the other, precisely for the reasons that you've mentioned. Is that that once you do that, you've uh, excluded you know any number of engagements where you'd be called upon to take a, a you know a different position. I suppose uh, and fair in these fair value cases, of course, uh, in New York, particularly the marketability discount is one of those areas. Another I might think of is tax affecting, although that's perhaps settled law in other jurisdictions. I'm not sure it is in New York. <laughs> tax, you know, tax affecting is, is another issue, and uh, it, it, it is one where appraisers have gotten all over themselves in uh, screwing up the economics of tax affecting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think that most of, uh, well, in, in any event, uh, I have uh, tax affected uh, S corporations and LLCs for 
many years and continue to do so because I think it's I think it's the appropriate valuation method methodology. On to confession number eight. You call that what we will or will not do. It sounds related to what we've just been talking about in terms of positions you'll take or not in litigation and who you will or won't work for. What 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 else does that confession add? Well, I, I think it's just a slightly different perspective because that one references number seven, the positions to take. Uh, attorneys will sometimes ask appraisers to push the envelope a, a little bit. And now, if, if I'm pushing the envelope well within the, the, the theoretical envelope, that if I'm, quote, pushing the envelope well within the theoretical envelope that I've created for myself over the years, uh, that's one thing. If I'm being asked to push the envelope someplace else, then I don't. I think this is more in terms of behavior than anything else. And it's important for business appraisers, just like for people in life, to have a good understanding of what you will do and what you won't do. I will sometimes travel 70 miles an hour in a 65-mile-an-hour zone. I won't travel 80 miles an hour in a 65-mile-an-hour zone. I mean, there's some things I will do and some things I won't, and I try to apply that same, you know, that, that same kind of logic to the business world. I, I bet there are instances where you initially get that call from the attorney who seems to be wanting a specific, you know, goal-oriented opinion, and, and you're able to, you know, talk him or her down from that and explain to the attorney why, in the end, that's going to be counterproductive to the to the integrity of the case they want to put on has that has that worked for you sometimes well it it does uh i have a case currently where it's a damages case and i had no problem with the attorneys but they thought that the damages should be measured by business valuation we did some preliminary work and basically said that would not be an appropriate measure of damages in this case. We'd need to take a different tact uh, to look at damages and uh, a lost earnings uh, over a reasonable period of time would, for example, be a, a more reasonable approach. And they bought into that approach after some discussion. But I, it, we, we, their original, if we had gone with evaluation, we'd have lost. I mean, you know, it wouldn't have made sense under the right. under the facts of the circumstances. Right. You didn't immediately say that's not going to work. You worked through the process and you were able to convince the client that there was a better way. Not only was there a better way to do it, but that the way they wanted to do it just wasn't going to work. Well, and 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 they agreed. I think that this what you will do or what you won't do is something that has to do with internal consistency. It's a wholeness or an internal. I don't know what the word is, but it's a sense of a sense of understanding of what's right. Quote, quote, right. And in terms of testifying consistent with you know published positions that you've taken in the past, I mean the access to court decisions. And, and you're a very prolific writer, and you're not shy about your opinions. So for you in particular, well, I would say not just for you, but for experts in, in, in mm -hmm. general, it is it is relatively easy in this day and age to investigate and, and discover positions taken by experts, even beyond the whatever the minimum requirements are for disclosure, you know, sure. un, under the court rules. Sure, and that is uh, that's that's true. I, I've been uh, cross-examined many times 
the attorney will stand up and read something. Uh, Mr. Mercer, did you write that? <laughs> and I said, well, I, you know, I, I may respond in one of several ways. Well, that doesn't sound like anything I would have written. May I see it, please? Or uh, that sounds like something that I could have written. Could I see? Wh- could I see where you, you know, where you're reading from? <laughs> and he pulls out something that was uh, written 20 years ago. Well, which is fine. You know, if it's written 20 years ago, maybe it has relevance, maybe it doesn't. Yeah. Confession number nine, and, and, and this one reads like it's really totally directed at, at, at attorneys. You say, I hate redirect, in parentheses, mostly. Do explain, please. I learned to be very wary of redirect uh, early in my career when I worked for a number of attorneys in in the Memphis, in the broader Memphis area where I would testify and do a very good job of testifying. And then the attorney would feel, for whatever reason, I guess because of the client or, or, or for whatever reason, that he need to go into redirect. Yeah. Let me just, uh, for anyone who, who's listening who might not uh, be as conversant as you and I with this, redirect is you've been cross-examined by the opposing attorney, and now the attorney you're working with, if he or she wants to, can get up and ask you questions that are designed to respond to points brought out in the cross-examination by the other attorney. Exactly. And in any in, in any cross-examination, uh, someone may score a small point or two, I mean, or they may score big points. The purpose of redirect is really to give the opportunity an opportunity to rehabilitate or to uh, eliminate any confusion. Well, when an attorney gets up on redirect and opens the door to another cross-examination, then you you go through everything and have to do things again. And I, I have had redirects that were, well, I've had recrosses that were longer than my cross as, as a younger guy. So I, I, I get to the point where uh, when I'm dealing with an attorney, I say, of course, you have the right to redirect. And if, if let's talk about some things where you might want to clarify things if something happens in cross, but let's limit those because we're going to make strong points on most of the points. And so the redirect is something that's thought about, thought through, or deals with a one-time thing where maybe I, I didn't get an opportunity to explain something. Yeah, so it, it, what you're really talking about is planning with the attorney you're working with in advance even of yes. the cross-examination because the attorney may not even have the opportunity to speak with you after the cross-examination is over and before he or she might want to start a redirect, right? I mean, it's just, you know... Right. You know, Mr. Attorney, do you have any redirect? And and then they're on. And so, you you know, it's all the more important to discuss this in advance. And it sort of sounds like the the rule of good enough. Uh, yes, there are some points that we might want to address, but if it's just going to open the door to other things that we don't want to open the door to on balance, better to leave it alone. Right. I remember one time where redirect was quite helpful. The last question on cross-examination was uh, short-circuited when I tried to explain, okay, and the guy cut me off. And if left at that, there were open issues. The attorney got up and said, Mr. Mercer, it looked to me like you wanted to provide an explanation to the court uh, to your answer. Would you like to do that? I said, yes, please. 
No, no, that sounds like a, a perfect scenario for, for redirect. Yeah. I, I was wondering um, if you were, in your personal experience, whether as the years roll on, more and more courts are insisting that the direct testimony of the valuation expert be limited to submission, you know, their reports. In other words, they're not actually getting on the stand and going through a direct exam. Their report is the direct exam. And in, in which case, the attorney you're working with, unless he or she is going to do redirect, they're not even going to be asking you questions. It's just going to be your report and cross. Yeah, and I I don't like that particular trend uh, or trend. Well, that's the case in tax court, where uh, in in tax court your report is your direct, and you know by agreement with the court uh, you can sometimes present qualifications and and get started. But uh, as an expert, to immediately start at cross-examination is not ideal. And, and, it, and it presumes, by the way, that the court has thoroughly read the report, and sometimes that's the case and sometimes that's not. So I always ask for the opportunity for direct. All right. We're about to hit your, your final confession, number 10, and, and it's called answer yes or no, comma, only. Now, before you launch on that one, I got to say, and, and you know, every attorney who sits down with any witness, and not not an expert, you know, what's what's the uh, advice they give, particularly when they're being examined by opposing counsel? Yes, no, I don't know. Those are your answers. Don't give them anything else. And and it's interesting now that 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 you're talking about, you know, as an expert witness, you know, when do you? And we're talking about cross-examination, of course, here. When do you toe that line? In court, most of the time, at least in my experience, judges will provide experts with the opportunity to answer a question, yes or no, and then offer at least a brief explanation. Uh, Sometimes, uh, when asked to answer yes or no, I have said, Your Honor, I would not be able to answer that question, yes or no, without further explanation, because to do so would would be misleading to the court. So sometimes, though, the courts will say you you must answer yes or no. If that's the case, then uh, as an expert, I uh, am looking at those questions because the attorneys are wanting you to answer yes in almost every case, leading you down a path to where they want you to go. So what I've, what I've learned is that if there is anything wrong with the question, anything wrong with the question, I'll answer no. And, and because if that upsets them, then they'll ask me an, an additional question, in which case I'll get an opportunity to explain. But I have not misled, I have not been misleading if I answer no if there's anything wrong with the question. I'm wondering if what you're describing, and, and particularly the way judges uh, might limit you to the yes or no, do you find that that happens more when there's a jury involved versus a, a bench trial? Peter, my uh, experience with juries in economics cases is somewhat limited. I've, I've testified before maybe a half a dozen j- juries. I, I, I can't remember exactly how many jury trials, but n- most are bench trials. So if it's a jury trial, then I'm just trying to answer the question as best I can for the jury. If it's a bench trial, I see little benefit to the court in limiting answers to yes or no. Well, this is this is another 
example of, of I guess that backs up to your confession number nine about redirect and, and it's all the more important therefore to have that good rapport and planning in advance with the attorney you're working with so that he or she will understand that that no answer you just gave was perhaps based on that one part of the question that you couldn't right. say yes to and maybe that's going to be a candidate for a suitable candidate for uh, redirect. It, it precisely. Good. Precisely. Well, Chris, you've you've confessed. I'm prepared to uh, give you absolution. I'll I'll remind anyone who brings this against me that you've absolved me. All right, you've got it, Chris. It's been wonderful talking with you. I'm so happy we're able to get back on the podcast with me, and I hope we can do it again. I look forward to that time. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris. If you did. Please tell your friends and colleagues about it, and you can let the rest of the world know by posting a review on iTunes, or you can let me know what you think directly by email to pmoller at farrellfritz.com. Also, I'm extending an open invitation to business divorce attorneys and business appraisers to share with me on this podcast their real-life experiences for what I hope will be an ongoing series of episodes I call Business Divorce Stories. If you're interested, Get in touch with me, and we'll set up an in-person or Skype recording session. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, every Monday morning I post a new article about the most recent court decisions and other developments of interest to business owners and business divorce professionals on my New York Business Divorce blog. Till next time, this is Peter Mahler wishing you all the best.